For our final episode this season, I'm happy to welcome author, comedian, and actor Tommy Davidson onto the show, reading from his book, Living in Color. Hey, this is Tommy Davidson, and you're listening to Storybound. Showtime at the Apollo. I was performing in D.C., first at the penthouse and then at the Ibex and Triples. I was doing comedy at places that weren't purely comedy clubs. That was good for me to get my feet at first. You're just out there, you know what I mean? You can't quite believe what you're doing in there. It's exciting and exhilarating. It's frightening and scary. And it's a drug. It's a high. I was doing comedy, performing for almost a year, before I even went into the comedy club in D.C. Actually, I'd never been in one before. But I started going to this open mics at places like Garvin's. They had open mic at the Improv in D.C. around then, too. But I had not broken in there yet. Once I took to the stage, I needed to educate myself about black entertainers, black performers, black audiences, in the clubs where I performed. I learned a lot from the older performers, many of whom still perform on the Chitlin circuit. They taught me to appreciate those that came before me, on whose shoulders I stood. I also learned a great deal from my audiences, black and white. I became an expert in what would set each off, in howls of laughter. You come downstairs, think you know some shit. Mama, we hungry. Take your ass to sleep, you won't be hungry. <laughs> from the clubs in Washington, D.C., to Harlem's Apollo Theater. There was a whole world of entertainment history to embrace. No one gets here alone. Coming up, I was greatly inspired by black entertainers who are part of a permanent culture in the United States. Imagine American culture without black folk. You can't. There would be nothing to talk about. No blues, no jazz, no gospel, no rock and roll, no Elvis, no Bob Dylan. Internationally, the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton would have had no songs to learn to launch their careers if there were no black performers. Take away Louis Armstrong, Robert Johnson, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Chuck Berry, Miles Davis, Lil Richard, Ray Charles. And what are you left with? Not a whole hell of a lot. No one has danced the way that Nicholas Brothers did, nor the way that Judas Jameson did. No one sang the way Billie Holiday or Sarah Vaughn or Ella Fitzgerald did. They are a part of what makes American culture so great. Black comedians have been making people laugh for so long and so well that white comedians used to put on blackface just to get a laugh. Moms Mabley exist in her own galaxy of talent. And Richard Pryor? There is comedy before and after Pryor, and no comedy today without him. The artist I most admire? Oh, that's a black guy to turn Jewish or that's the guy with the one eye or that's I don't think those hooks are there anymore for me I think I'm judged now and I may be living in fantasy land but I think I'm judged now as a performer Sammy Davis Jr. was a consummate entertainer he could do it all sing dance act and he'd been doing it from the age of four when he started performing on the streets of Harlem Sammy was all about love. He had a way of reaching the audience 
regardless of his color or theirs, because he spoke to their humanity. And that's been a role model and a goal for me. But back to my career. I was a success, but a very local one. The penthouse, the strip club where I first performed, remained my home base. For a 19-year-old, going to work in a place full of naked women <laughs> was a reason enough to show up. Hanging out in the dressing room with the dancers was an education in itself. I got good really fast. I was also appearing in D.C., where I would perform for mostly white audiences. I didn't really have to change my act. After all, a white family had raised me, and they had been my first audience. In these early days, I got to watch other young comedians working out their material. One of the people that stood out even then was Dave Chappelle. He grew up in my neighborhood, too. He grew up on the good side. He was kind of scared of us when we came around, boy. He was an unknown and raw, but like me, he was learning what worked and what didn't. That takes years. But that's how you build a career as comic. You know who was really funny? Even back then, Martin Lawrence. One of the reasons that we were all at Garvin's was Sinbad performed there. Sinbad headlined on open mic night, and that was really big for me. That's where I first met Martin. He had a uniform <laughs> that he always wore. Sort of like a Eddie Murphy Raw. And he was funny when he wasn't performing. He was quite a guy, almost shy too. But on stage, his loud personality came out. For the most part, these weren't paid gigs. Once in a while, I would go on my friend Ron Sewell's van with his friend Mike James to military bases in Virginia or a cabaret. But that was it. Until I performed at the Carter Baron. That made all the difference and was the start of bigger things. The Carter Baron Amphitheater was a 4,000-seat summer venue. It was run by Al Dale, who was legendary in D.C., for programming both the Fort DuPont Theater and the Carter Baron for the National Park Service. It was said that Al Dale's summer community programs kept the peace on the streets in D.C.'s toughest neighborhoods. Al had me open for concerts and musical acts. At the time, I was doing musical imitations in my act, which no one else was doing. So that set me apart and made me right to open for the summer stage audiences. No comic in D.C. was doing big shows like that. So I took a big leap past a lot of the local comics by performing in that big venue. I would do a 20-minute set to get the audience ready to hear some music. I opened for Evelyn Champagne King, who had the hits like Shame, Love Come Down, and I'm in Love. And Starpoint, an African-American R&B group from Maryland who later had a big hit, Object of My Desire, as well as Patti LaBelle and even Kenny G. One night when I was opening for Melba Moore, I was in the men's bathroom after going on stage when a young singer in her band approached me saying he wanted to say hello and shake my hand. I had been used to meeting Patti LaBelle fans, which often included a large contingent of gay church guys, so I wasn't really sure about this fella's agenda. I would at least like to have washed my hands, but I obliged anyway. We talked a bit, and he was a great guy, and he told me what a fan he was of my comedy. Soon after, he launched his career, and that's how I also came to open for Freddie Jackson. As for Kenny G, he really liked my comedy and invited me to a few shows with him. At first, I wondered, 
Why is this white bread guy asking me to go on tour with him? What I quickly found out is that Kenny G is really here. Kenny was a good friend of Kashif's, the multi-instrumentalist, singer, songwriter, and producer who had been a part of BT Express and had written Evelyn Champagne King's hit, I'm In Love. At one time, Kenny shared an apartment with Kashif. Kenny G and Patti LaBelle taught me a lot about show business. They showed me what being a professional meant and what it took to give a powerful and flawless performance. I learned the work ethic from Kenny G, who would practice for an hour before the show, in addition to spending another hour for the sound check. That was a total of two hours of rehearsal before every show. Kenny did all that so his performance would seem effortless when he was on stage. Patti LaBelle taught me something about performing. Patti would not only do an encore, she would always do more than two songs, every night. No one ever left the Patti LaBelle show feeling cheated. I learned that from her. As for comedy, I did have one mentor at the Ibex Club in DC. His name was Catfish. I didn't remember his last name, if I ever knew it at all. He was just Catfish, and he had performed in vaudeville and the Chipman circuit, taking trains to St. Louis and Detroit. He had opened for a lot of jazz acts, and his own performances were like bebop improvisation. He was a mom's maybe kind of comic, always talking in the grumble of motherfucker this and motherfucker that right down to the raw pork chop. Catfish could make me laugh more than any comic, man. Often he waited until after my actor pulled me aside and gave me advice. I remember one time he told me, listen to me, motherfucker. Don't you ask nobody shit. You ask them no questions about what you're getting ready to do. You just fucking do it. Those motherfuckers came to see you. They paid a ticket and they come to see you. And they don't want no interview, no questions. They just want you to do it. When's the last time you went to McDonald's and told them how to make a burger? You ask for a Big Mac and they give it to you. That's what you gotta do. The Carter Baron also did something else for me. It gave me greater ambitions because after successfully performing at the Carter Baron, I decided I need to go to the Apollo. The Apollo back then was some serious shit. It was not some clown coming out and making fun of the performers and the audience. It was a firing squad. You were out there and you killed or you were killed. I started going up to New York to appear in the legendary Apollo Theater's amateur night. Today, everyone knows the Apollo on 125th Street between Adam and Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard and Frederick Douglass Boulevard and Harlem is filled with million-dollar apartments and hip restaurants. However, back then throughout the 90s, Harlem was dying. New York was still suffering from the effects of the crack epidemic, the main artery of Harlem. 125th Street was a collection of discount stores and closed and going out of business stores. There was no tourism, just street life. The Apollo Theater itself was being renovated in hopes of improving the neighborhood. Major concerts were rarely performed there, and its future was far from secure. 
I remember one time I went up to New York and I had taken the Greyhound to Port Authority, which in those days smelled like a public toilet and was filled with predators looking for easy marks. I had a sprint from the bus, out of the bus terminal to catch the city bus uptown. It was winter and it was sub-zero. And you know that when it snows in New York, that means dirty slush puddles as big as sinkholes everywhere. And I'm standing there with whatever outfit I put together to perform in, with whatever raggedy coat I was wearing, which didn't do much good. I'm waiting for this motherfucking bus to come, and when I finally spot it in the distance, I'm jumping up and down, not only for joy, but to keep from freezing. And all I'm thinking is, man, I can't wait to get on that bus. And then the bus pulls up, slows down in front of me, and this fat old white driver takes a look at me and just keeps driving. And I'm watching this bus go off to the distance, and I'm cursing him and telling myself, if I ever see him again, I'm gonna whip his ass. And then the same thing happens with the next bus. But I was determined to get to the Apollo because it had tradition. Who hadn't performed at the Apollo? All the greats had performed on the weathered stage. Louis Armstrong, Bill Bojangles Robinson, Bessie Smith, Duke Ellington, Diana Ross and the Supremes, Sammy Davis Jr., James Brown, and the famous Flames, Jimi Hendrix and Bob Marley. And as for comics, Steppin' Fetchin' himself graced the stage, as had Moms Mabley, Dewey Pigme Markham, and more recently, Red Fox, Godfrey Cambridge, Bill Cosby, and Richard Pryor. The tradition of the amateur night at the Apollo Theater still remains strong as an inexpensive and fun way for African-Americans to spend an evening among their own. Shooting booze, applause, encouragement to the entertainers who might one day become famous. Among the entertainers who got their start at the amateur night were 17-year-old Ella Fitzgerald and Jimi Hendrix, who won an amateur musician concert in 1964. When I took the stage at the Apollo, I was still too young and foolish to be afraid. I was just gonna do what I knew I could do. It had worked for the crowds at the Carter Baron, and I knew it would go over with the crowd at the Apollo. Ralph Cooper, who had been the master of ceremonies 50 years, was there to introduce the contestants and to beckon us up those famous stairs that led from the dressing rooms to the stage. Cooper called them the stairway to the stars because the walls were filled with framed photographs of performers like Louis Jordan, Aretha Franklin, and Lloyd Price. Back then, my act was talking about what city people knew, living with roaches, having to go to work, dealing with addicts and drunk people. I would become those characters like Larry the Drunk, who was always getting fired from his job for stealing things he didn't know he had taken. I knew guys like that. They justified their reality. I had routines about black women and how they were psychic. They know all the bullshit before they say it about the difference between the way white women and black women get angry. How older white guys get angry in short sentences. You're out of line! Meanwhile, the younger white guys, they get angry and stay friendly at the same time. Dude, can I get you not to do that? I always did imitations of singers such as Al Green, Lou Rawls, Anita Baker, Lionel Richie, Michael McDonald, Barry White, Peebo Bryson, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, the Shy Lights, Blue Magic, the Delphonics, Michael Jackson, and Rick James. In fact, one of my bits that always killed 
was imagining singers like Rick James or Prince going to McDonald's. All told, I had about an hour's worth of material. And at each show, I would pick a different 10 minutes of whatever I felt would work best for the performance. All through the summer, I battled one performer after another until at summer's end, I was in the finals. I was good enough that even the New York Times took note in an article playing again at the Apollo Top Dog Night, published on June 11, 1986. Reporter Samuel G. Friedman singled out the season's top performers, including a comedian named Tommy Davidson, who imitates the funk star Rick James. Despite my success all season and the press attention, I lost to a singer, David Peason, in the finals. However, after my performance, a young black man dressed in a conservative suit and a tie approached me. He was named Sinclair Jones. Sinclair was a New York lawyer who loved entertainment and the entertainers more than law. One night in 1987, Sinclair recalled, I saw a comedian perform at the Apollo and I said to myself, God, this guy is incredible. Sinclair called it the 10 minutes that changed his life. That comedian was me. At the time, Sinclair was a lawyer at one of the big sports firms in New York City, and he happened to be there that night. He met me backstage and said, oh my God, I've never seen anything like you. You're incredible. I think you can write your own ticket. We talked and he promised to stay in touch and I headed back home to D.C. Sinclair came down to D.C. to see me perform my whole set. Afterward, he sat down with me and said that he believed that I could be one of the most successful entertainers anywhere. He could see me doing not just stand-up, but also TV and movies. But if that was all that Sinclair had to say, my life and his would have remained the same. Instead, Sinclair made an offer saying, I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is. I'll take you to L.A. for a week, all expenses paid, with a place to stay. You perform at the clubs out there, and if you like it, and all goes well, would you move out there and let me manage your career? Sinclair was willing to invest in me. That made all the difference. I didn't think for one second. I said, sure. And soon enough, we were planning our week in L.A., I'd never been to California before. A big thank you to Tommy Davidson for reading and for closing out the season. You can pick yourself up a copy of his book, Living in Color, available now at your local bookseller. Thank you to Amanda Davidson and Pryor, our friends at Kensington Books and Epidemic Sound. Production assistance by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Podglomerate. Social media help from Sylvia Belltill. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron and our mixing engineer is Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, hosting, mixing, and mastering for this episode were done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. Storybound will be going off the air for a little while, but I encourage you to please stay up to date via my Substack, judebrewer.substack.com, or you can always follow me on Twitter, at Jude Brewery. I really appreciate you sticking with us for five seasons. It's been an incredible run. You know, I started doing this in 2016. I took a little recorder out and I just started recording my friends and colleagues, you know, writers I had met on the road when I was performing my own work. Writing kept me alive for so many years. And to spend the time that I have 
for the past six years, just from storytellers telling stories to Storybound, getting to experiment with the format so much as much as I have. I'm incredibly thankful. Again, thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you again soon. Yeah, because I was going like a train. Okay, cool. Okay, there's... Thank you, man. I didn't really expect to be reading, actually. I've been doing voiceovers for cartoons, and this is very different. I remember doing my, um, doing the audiobook and saying, I will never do this shit again. It's so hard.